House Bill 127 would make it easier for homeschooling approval from the district by only requiring the superintendent to acknowledge the intent to homeschool and by removing the requirement that parents must submit textbooks and subject curriculum they plan to use for approval. More than 20,000 Arkansas students learn in the comfort of their own home. A new law requires public school districts to allow these homeschoolers to enroll in individual classes. Also on the Senate floor today, a bill that would allow homeschool kids to play sports at public schools. Kids who are in good academic standing would be eligible for this. They would also be able to participate in clubs, events, and other opportunities at public schools. That's a significant adjustment. Yeah. That's going to be tricky to regulate, but wow, what an opportunity. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And today on the podcast, we're talking about a subject that is near and weird to my heart, and that is homeschooling. As many of y'all might know, I am a former homeschool kid. I was homeschooled from second through eighth grade. And even though I turned out well academically, thank you, mom, homeschooling is weird to my heart. Because I was not only a homeschooled kid in the 90s, I was also an evangelical Christian homeschool kid. And I'll get a little bit more into that later in the episode. But homeschooling, you know, it's not only a personal topic for me, but it's also now a professional topic because the labor of homeschooling is highly gendered, kind of like K through 12 school. It's mostly women, in this case, moms, doing the teaching. In his book, Homeschool, an American History, the author Milton Gaither writes, Homeschooling's gains have come largely from the labors of a large group of ordinary Americans, almost all of them women. But before we get deeper into the homeschool landscape today and really the focus of this homeschool conversation, which is the incredible, daunting legal force behind homeschooling as a movement, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork, do a little bit of homeschooling 101. So what is it exactly? My basic definition of homeschooling is parents teaching their children at home, outside of any formal education settings, including public schools, private schools, charter schools. And for the purposes of this episode, I'm not really referring to hybrid schools, professional tutoring situations, even things like unschooling, which is another form of homeschooling. And as for how long homeschooling has been around, at least in the United States, home-based education is nothing new. But if we're talking about homeschooling as a movement, 1972 was a pivotal year. That is when the U.S. Supreme Court decided the case of Wisconsin v. Yoder. And it involved Amish parents who withdrew their children from public school after eighth grade in accordance with Amish tradition and in violation of compulsory education state law. And SCOTUS sided with the Amish parents, said, go ahead, homeschool your kids. And that decision, Wisconsin v. Yoder, established a really important legal precedent for non-Amish homeschool families. Because something I truly did not realize was that in a lot of states at the time, homeschooling was effectively illegal. Now, fast forward 50 years to today, Homeschooling is not only legal in all states, but also increasingly unregulated, as in no curriculum or testing requirements for homeschoolers. And some states don't even require parents to notify the school district if they decide to teach their kids at home. But why homeschool? Why bother, right? These days, the biggest reasons cited by homeschool parents are concerns over their kids' safety, 
exposure to drugs and negative peer pressure at school, and a desire for a moral education for their children. Enter a lot of evangelical Christian homeschoolers. Although, I do want to be clear that not all homeschoolers are Christian. They are not all religiously motivated. They are not all politically conservative and right-wing. In fact, what's fascinating about the origins of the homeschooling movement in the late 60s and 70s in the U.S. is how it was really this confluence of kind of anti-establishment, countercultural folks on both the right and left end of the political spectrum. Like parents who said, you know what, I do not trust these institutions that are public school and I'm dissatisfied with how schools are educating my kids. I think I know better, so I'm going to take things into my own hands and homeschool. Now, as for who homeschools today, in the U.S., the population is still very predominantly white, although Black families are the fastest-growing homeschool demographic in the U.S. And globally, the U.S. is the homeschool capital of the world, although I think it would be a stretch to say that Americans invented it. But again, for reasons that will become clearer in this episode, it is a very American thing to do. Homeschooling has also gotten a lot of press since the pandemic. You've probably seen headlines about how rates of homeschooling are surging. Over a million kids have been pulled out of public schools since COVID shutdowns. But proportionally, we're still talking about a very small minority. According to the National Household Education Survey, in 2019, 2.8% of K-12 students were homeschooled. If we're talking mid-pandemic, those numbers were looking more like 10%, over 15%. But that COVID-related homeschooling surge brings us to this episode's guests. Reporter Mina Hart-Dewerson and reporter-producer Julia Lindau worked together on a long-form Vice News piece called The Secret Power of Homeschoolers that came out in October 2022. As I mentioned to Mina and Julia in our interview, I was stunned to learn what that secret power is and just how much it intersects with, yes, my own evangelical homeschooling culture that I was raised in, as well as issues beyond the classroom that we have covered on Unladylike. And the first voice you're going to hear is Mina. I am curious what your familiarity with homeschooling was. Were were either of you homeschooled or did you know homeschoolers growing up or anything like that? I did not have any personal experience homeschooling. I'm from Berkeley, California, which had a lot of the more kind of liberal end of homeschooling. You know, when I was growing up, that was sort of my exposure to homeschooling was people who were much more on that kind of hippie end of the spectrum of homeschooling for those reasons. And I have two little kids. So when we started looking into this story, I mean, we were in deep COVID. All of these parents were kind of opting into homeschooling. It was a big conversation just in my kind of parenting community. And homeschooling, I think, meant a lot of different things to different people during the early pandemic. It was not necessarily what we were actually doing, a lot of us were doing like remote school and working at the same time, but you started to hear the words homeschooling a lot more. So I think that was something I was interested in. And, you know, Julie and I had done a lot of education stories together. So I was interested to look into it, but no, definitely didn't have any really personal experience. Ditto. I was not, I went to public school my whole life. I was just trying to rack my brain while Mina was talking. I don't even, I'm sure I know people who were homeschooled, but I can't name any off the top of my head. So yeah, before the pandemic, it was a foreign subject to me. This episode is partly inspired by an unladylike listener in Canada, who's also a high school teacher and mystified by homeschooling in the U.S. She wrote, 
I think as a Canadian living in a big city, we see this as an indictment on the failures of the American education system, as well as the U.S.'s more conservative nature. Is this wrong? What happens to these kids? How closely monitored is the curriculum? What is accountability like? It seems like this is a system where kids falling through the cracks is a feature not a bug. And those are all very big questions with very big answers, but I'm curious if y'all have any just initial thoughts. I think that the thing about homeschooling is it's an incredibly diverse community. So there are so many people who homeschool for wildly different reasons, and they find themselves under this tent together, and they might not be people who would agree on anything else in their lives. So that's like a really interesting thing is you know, when you're asking these questions about are these kids falling through the cracks? Is it because it's conservative? Like for some families, yes, other families would really violently reject those assertions. So I think, and we, Julie and I met a lot of people, I think across the spectrum, but I think the overarching thing is the people who choose to homeschool, it is an indictment against the the education system in America. And they're largely saying for whatever reasons, we are very unhappy with the institution of education in America, and we think we can do it better. As we go into in the piece, the homeschooling movement started as a parents' rights movement, which has kind of come full circle in the U.S. in that now all the conversations about public school are about parents' rights and taking back kids' education. So, you know, I, I see... I see where your caller is coming from. It's always funny to hear observations of U.S. society and culture, but there's obviously a lot of issues with education in this country. And I think the growth in homeschooling speaks to that. I think it brings together people on both ends of the political spectrum who feel not represented in what they see on the national stage. So whether, you know, that's the people who were in kind of my orbit when I was growing up who were much more liberal, kind of rejecting the establishment for that reason. Those are the people who also don't want to be regulated when it comes to their education, even though politically they might not align in the same way as the people who are very conservative who don't want to be regulated. But the core theme is these are people who feel like we know what's best for our kids. We should be in charge of what's happening for our kids. And yeah, to what Julia said, that is a theme that has been co-opted now by the right, that parents' rights philosophy. But a lot of people in the homeschooling tent say those same things, even though they may not feel mm-hmm. that way on social or other political issues. But yeah, I mean, we we definitely have seen a lot of parents really convinced that they're being failed by whatever these big systems are, you know, whether that's like their local school boards or the curriculum. We met people who reject the curriculum because it's not inclusive enough and people who reject the curriculum because they think it is teaching their kids too much stuff that they don't want their kids to know about. So across the spectrum is parents who think we should really be the ones in charge And I think you see that attitude in America a lot lately about rejecting a lot of different institutions that we've sort of all accepted for a long time. But education is where the battles are often the fiercest because people feel the most strongly and the most protective about their kids. And ladies, have you heard of Cozy Earth? I'll tell you someone who has. Oprah. That's right. Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's Favorite Things five years in a row, and now it's on my Favorite Things list as well. Cozy Earth crafts luxury goods that transform your lifestyle. And that sounds like a big promise, but on Ladies, I'm telling you so far, it's transforming my lifestyle because not only am I getting dreamy sleep in my Cozy Earth sheets, I am also getting extra comfort in my bamboo stretch knit pocket tee designed to be effortless, free-flowing, and get this, help 
prevent night sweats. Yeah, nobody wants to talk about night sweats, but listen, I need some help with my night sweats, and finally, Cozy Earth is here. All products come with a 10-year warranty. Cozy Earth has also provided an exclusive offer for Unladies today, up to 35% off site-wide when you use the code UNLADYLIKE. So head to CozyEarth.com and step up your day today. So head to CozyEarth.com and check out their bedding, loungewear, and bath essentials and enjoy up to 35% off site-wide with the code UNLADYLIKE. Before I get back to my conversation with Mina Durston and Julia Lindau, I want to emphasize how this concept of parents' rights in education has been bandied about for the past century. In the 1950s, the parents' rights movement was focused on getting communist curriculum out of public schools. In the 1960s, you see a lot of the same white suburban moms who were panicked over communism, now panicked over desegregation. In the 1990s, parents' rights really spun up again in reaction to sex ed in school. But I mean, it it really has reached yet another fever pitch if we head to old Florida. You know that don't say gay bill? Well, the actual title of that law is the Parental Rights in Education Act. I mean, really, whenever you hear people talking about parents' rights, get ready because it is a highly conservative dog whistle. I mean, is it even a dog whistle? It's more like just a loudspeaker at this point. All right, let's get back to the interview. Was there anything in particular that prompted the secret power of homeschoolers and, you know, any particular questions that y'all were hoping to answer? I think we were doing a lot of reporting on education and these trends in general happening. And we were hearing a lot about the parents' rights movement. And when you kind of trace the parents' rights movement back, there's an incredible overlap with this homeschool lobby and this kind of powerful secret stealth force And we were seeing those same names, a lot of the same kind of players come up in a lot of different political issues. We were seeing a lot of the same people driving the efforts against abortion legislation and transgender athlete legislation. Like we were seeing a lot of the same groups be associated with these legislative pushes. And it kind of all traced back to this HSLDA organization and, and kind of the origins of the homeschool movement, which we thought was fascinating because homeschooling seems on its face like something fairly innocuous. Like, okay, if you want to make your decisions for your kids, you should be allowed to do whatever you want to. But when we started to see these connecting threads with other political issues, I think we became really interested in like, what is this machine and how does it work? And why are these things all connected? And why are these all, what is the Venn diagram here? And the new energy around homeschooling that you really saw surge. Statistically, when we first started researching the story, it was unprecedented numbers because of the pandemic. On Unladylike, the Alliance Defending Freedom has unfortunately been coming up a lot in episodes covering trans athlete bans, Roe v. Wade, like the even the Mifepristone case. It seems like all, all roads keep leading back to this one organization. And then it popped up here. And I was like, are you are you kidding? What is the connection between Alliance Defending Freedom and this current parents' rights homeschooling movement? So Michael Ferris is the founder of the HSLDA. And if you watch our piece, you'll see a few different quotes from him. He was really one of the big pushers behind the homeschooling movement and getting the state out of kids' education. And he then became the president of Alliance Defending Freedom. He also has, he started a group called Parent, I think Parents Rights or ParentalRights.org. He is just kind of a conservative legal force in this country. And he got his start in homeschooling. 
Here is a young Michael Ferris at the 1987 President's Commission on Privatization of Education. Will the executive director please call the next witness? Yes, the next witnesses are Douglas Alexander, Citizens for Educational Freedom, and Michael Ferris, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. I'm the son of a re just recently retired public school principal who was 29 years an elementary principal in the, in the small town I grew up in Washington State. Uh, I, uh, I'm an attorney and I've uh, been involved in litigation involving education for most of the 12 years of my practice. But my real love is, is what I do with my own children, that is we teach our children at home. We have five daughters and this is our sixth year of homeschooling. Uh, we have lived uh, both in Washington State and Virginia and for the first three years in both states taught our children illegally under state law and since Virginia has changed its law we are now legally teaching our children at home. It's really interesting to trace his journey and and see that it kind of all comes back to this this issue, which, like Mina said, it it seems kind of innocuous, but it speaks to something much larger right now in our culture and society, which is the desire to keep the state out of certain issues like education. The common denominator among these families is they're opting out of this system that for decades has been publicly accepted as a thing we all do. Like this is an institution we all do. We all go to school. Like school is available for everybody. Like we all go to school. We all buy into this thing. And then these are the people who are opting out. And so when you talk about like all roads lead back to ADF, all roads seem to lead back to Michael Ferris because he pioneered this strategy of fighting in court for the rights of parents to not be regulated, which is a huge thing for homeschool families. They want as little oversight as possible. They want to be fully in charge of their children, their education, what they do. They don't want to be tied to specific standards or tests or anything like that. They want to just be given the freedom. And there's a lot of variation in the country in terms of what you are legally allowed to and do and not do. And when it comes to homeschooling, those laws are kind of set regionally. But what the HSLDA does, which is what Michael Ferris's whole legal strategy was, was to basically take local governments to court over and over and over again over these parents' issues. Down to paperwork, a lot of times it's like, oh, I, I don't want my kid to have to fill out this thing to get credit for this year of school. We want as little regulation around this as possible. We don't want to be told what books they have to use, what they have to study, what metrics to succeed by the end of the year all that. So the HSLDA still their main function is to provide families legal support because a lot of these homeschool families will have to go to court over things that their district is requiring them to do or their local government has in place and they want to fight these regulations at every level. So that's like what the HSLDA's main role is. They're the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. They do legal defense like for homeschool issues. And that philosophy of fighting these tiny legal battles that add up to bigger things is kind of what the the ADF has been gone and done. They've done, done it through all these little tiny cases. They kind of identify these little opportunities to push for change, basically, you know, whether it's student athletes or abortion bans, or I think Michael Ferris was also involved. There was a New York Times report that he was also involved in contesting the election that he helped author the brief that like 21 states or something adopted to contest all these attorney generals signed off on this thing to contest the results of the election. So it's like this legal strategy, which is very quiet behind the scenes and then is able to affect this larger change by quietly pushing all these different laws all over the country until they snowball and get sort of national impact. It's a, it's a little bit, uh, eerie when you realize how many tentacles, how many parts of society are connected. And we had the same kind of reaction about the connection to homeschooling. And that's why we thought it was so interesting because there are so many people in the homeschooling community who don't realize that, who rely on HSLDA for support, who subscribe to them, who use them as a resource and maybe don't realize the larger political connections or ramifications of that lobbying group. Well, and that was... Partly what I was curious about as well of what sense did you all have that homeschooling parents feel like they are a part of a political movement as opposed to making sort of a private 
choice for themselves and their families. Or maybe those are one and the same. Yeah, that was interesting to me and a little bit surprising. And I think it's really mixed, the people that we spoke to. I think there are some people who really felt like they were part of a movement. I think a lot of people are really hesitant to say out loud that they are part of a political movement. The situation in which we felt the most sort of political momentum and energy was at this giant homeschool parents conference in Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis spoke at a homeschooling convention in Orlando about what he's done to fight for parents' rights in education. News 6 investigator Mike DeForest is live at the Rosen Shingle Creek Resort in Orlando. And Mike, the governor received a standing ovation. Standing ovation. Thousands of people here at this convention, mostly parents who homeschool their children. And that's where it felt like a political rally. You know, there was a lane of booths that were all about DeSantis and uh, abortion bans, you know, there were like little fetus models and there were people with flags and the Moms for Liberty were there. And that was the first time that people were making overt connections to what was happening in the political realm. I mean, DeSantis came and spoke at that conference and a bunch of other political figures. So it was the first time that we saw in the course of the reporting, it really be on full display that that the political implications are married to the larger goals of the homeschooling movement. But then individually, when you go talk to people, they're very hesitant to publicly align themselves with like a political movement. Most homeschool parents that we spoke to say, we're just doing this for our kids. But then if you dig a little bit deeper, there are a lot of people with political aspirations. You know, once you kind of get involved in the movement, it's like, oh, well, what else can we be fighting to change? What should we be fighting to change on a local level, on a state level, you know, there are some of the subjects in our piece had gotten interested in fighting for various kinds of legislation and seeing that success build with the support of the homeschool community. Because I spoke to this homeschool advocate parent in Washington, and this is not in our piece, but they were fighting a bill about age requirements in school, which was the thing that the homeschool community was really against. But she said to me very openly on the phone, like, we don't lose. The legislature bodies when they put up a bill that that accidentally or purposefully affects the homeschool community, they don't realize how strong of a lobby they're dealing with. Basically, like anti-homeschool legislation or legislation that homeschool families think is against them almost never wins because the momentum is so strong to fight it. And I think a lot of lawmakers, we, we have one in the piece who like starts out doing a piece of legislation that they think is non-controversial or protecting kids. And then you run into the full force of this community. And across the board, I mean, we've seen these bills that were interpreted as being against homeschool families get knocked down because they just can't withstand the strength of this community. We also encountered a lot of families, parents, which you alluded to, Mina, that really emphasized that they had no political connection at all. And there are a lot of families who yeah, do it do it for their own reasons and don't necessarily have an ideological bent. Even though, you know, I guess taking your kids out of a public institution like education it may not be a political act on the individual level. But as we get at, especially at the end of the piece, if so many people opt out, what does it mean for the state of, you know, education in this country? And public schools are really one of the last shared public spaces we have Mm. left in such a divided nation. If we lose that, that's just like, what, what is there left in terms of a place where people from different parts of the political spectrum can come together and not fight? I think that was a bigger point, Julia, that what you just raised is, is a lot of people did not, do not see their pulling out of their school as a political act. Whereas a lot of people who work in public education or in kind of public systems yeah. see that as kind of the most political act you can take because it destabilizes the rest of the infrastructure that our societies are kind of built on. And so, you know, we have this teacher in the piece who's very emotional about the effect of what happens when people start pulling their kids out of schools. And I think a lot of parents, the reaction is, well, the school is failing me and I have to do what I have to do. But Um, that teacher in the piece, I think, makes the point that there are a lot of other options before pulling your kids out. And when you pull your kids out, that has a really, it does, whether you want to or not, have a political 
impact. And so I think, yeah, even though most of the people when you speak to one-on-one are not saying like, I'm, I'm homeschooling for political reasons, it is a political act effectively. Yeah. And going back to the Canadian listener, I, I think this is such an American attitude, you know, that we do what is Mm. best for our family and ourselves and any repercussions on a societal or even community level, like that's not my problem, which isn't necessarily right or wrong, but it's just extremely American. (laughs) I did want to ask if there were Mm -hmm. any particular gender dynamics that y'all noticed in the process of reporting, because something I do find interesting is that public school teachers, overwhelmingly women, people leading, Mm -hmm. doing a lot of the homeschool it's overwhelmingly moms. I think the majority of people on the ground homeschooling are women, like doing the actual day-to-day homeschooling. I think the interesting thing about the gender dynamic is there are a lot of men at the organizational institutional level. So like the leadership of the HSLDA is pretty much all men. The leadership of its various programs like Generation Joshua, things like that, those are all pretty much run by men. When you talk about these legislative efforts, a lot of times the people who are really like spearheading these campaigns with a lot of influence tend to be men. We did meet some women who have been pretty active. And and I know that within the homeschool community, the when they mobilize for things, there are a lot of women involved in sort of like the grassroots mobilization. There's a lawmaker in the piece who we interview who is a mom turned legislator. And she had been basically pounding the pavement for years as a mom until an opportunity opened up where she was able to get a spot in the legislature. So at this conference that we were at, it was a lot of like elected male politicians doing the speaking and the attendees were mostly women. They were very, very excited, for example, that DeSantis was there as the keynote. You know, I think they felt really validated. It was like being at a Beatles concert. But yeah, I mean... It is a movement on the ground, very much driven by women, because it is so much a mom's movement. You hear so much about the mama bear thing and the moms for liberty were there. And at the time that we did this piece, there was so much overlap with the COVID stuff. Mm. Like they're fighting for freedom. And that means like medical freedom. That's the thing that they say a lot, you know, medical freedom and educational freedom. And that was like hand in hand for a lot of these people. And ladies, I have a new drinking ritual that I have to share with you. For the past few weeks, I have been swapping out my mid-morning coffee break for a mid-morning AG1 break. Sometimes I'll make myself a little refreshing smoothie, put my AG1 powder in, or I will just drink it with water, shake, shake, shake. And it leaves me feeling truly more energized and more focused. This is not a detox or weight loss supplement, none of that stuff that unladies are not interested in. No. AG1 is an all-in-one foundational nutrition formula that makes it easier for me to cover my nutritional bases every day. It is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients that give major benefits like gut health, boosted energy, even healthier-looking skin, hair, and nails. With AG1, taking good care of my body each day is really that simple. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash unladylike. That's drinkag one dot com slash unladylike. Check it out. How would you all compare sort of the power and influence of homeschool parents versus public school or even private school parents? 
I think one thing that has happened in the last few years is homeschool parents have been swept up in the movement of school choice, parents' Mm. choice. So it's like that faction is very vocal and very successful in what they want. And I think a lot of public school parents are maybe not engaging because that's the status quo. There's nothing for them to really do. And so when people get really organized about one specific thing that they really want to change, which the school choice parents are very active and vocal about rejecting being forced into public education and wanting sort of other options. And homeschooling falls into that, even though at the big national level, the homeschoolers don't even really endorse these kind of voucher programs, which is like one of these school choice things, because they don't want anything to do with the government. They don't even want the government's money to like do their own thing on a national level, as far as the lobby is concerned. Individual homeschool families are grateful for the money. Often they're excited to have some support to do their own thing. But you know, from a policy standpoint, the HSLDA, their position is that they don't even really uh, endorse these voucher programs. But the school choice movement and this parent's choice and this whole like movement to assert parental control in the education space, whether that's where your kids go to school, what they learn in school, what they're doing, connected to the school, sports and everything like that. I think the power comes in targeting what they're what they care about. You know, they're really only fighting for like one thing. So they're not fighting all the battles and getting their power fractured. They're very concentrated and they're fighting these like individual things one at a time very loudly and very forcefully. So I think maybe homeschool parents on their own are not nationally incredibly influential, but they've aligned themselves with the forces that are really powerful on these specific debates. So like when they see a piece of legislation that they don't like, they're really active in knocking it down. So they activate like all the channels that would would help to make sure that that kind of legislation doesn't pass. And the HSLDA is part of that because as we saw, whenever they have such a vast network across this country, they have chapters in every state, they have attorneys in every state that help parents who are facing any challenges, but also that monitor state level legislation, you know, because education, everything kind of happens on the state level, very little is on the federal level. So um, they have hundreds of thousands of members across the, across the country. So anytime anything comes up, they blast out emails, they send templates to all of their members saying, you should send this to, to your local representative, tell them you're concerned. You know, they make it really easy for parents to make it hard for legislators to pass any legislation they perceive as a threat. In the piece, we spend time at one of the, at the youth organization that Michael Ferris, the founder of the HSLDA, started more than a decade ago called Generation Joshua. When we spoke to the leadership of this group, they basically told us that because homeschooling was illegal initially in the U.S., or it was hard to homeschool and homeschooled families got penalized decades ago when they tried to, the whole act of homeschooling has become inherently political in terms of activism. That's why we saw all of these kids training to learn how to influence politics and policy, um, you know, on their local level. The HSLDA at least sees sees homeschooling freedom as only being possible if homeschoolers keep fighting for political rights on the state level. It's also interesting because it seems like a running narrative is that they are under attack somehow and that they have to defend their homestead against the state coming and banging down their door to upset their chosen way of life. It feels a smidge paranoid. And maybe this is also the part where I just start projecting my own <laughs> my own evangelical homeschooling background. Definitely the strength in the in activating the population comes from the fact that they feel like their very existence is being threatened. And so that's a really powerful tool. You know, if you tell a group of people, like, the thing you care the most about is under attack, they're going to rally for whatever you are asking them to support. 
because yeah, it's, it's in the name of their ideological freedom, the, what they want to choose for their family. And again, it's particularly emotional because it's people's kids. So they feel very protective and they, they're really motivated to take action. So even though we don't see homeschoolers necessarily getting involved with a lot of legislation all the time across the board, like when they do get involved, they are very powerful. I don't know if you want to speak about your personal experience, but yeah, did that ring true to you at all? I mean, were your parents politically active at all or did they see homeschool as under threat or? Yes and no. It was very much motivated partly by their conviction that public school was not really a safe space for us. And part of that was rooted in my mom's own experience as a public school teacher, which she went back to. Like, it's interesting. They kind of like went full circle of pulling everybody out of school. We homeschool. And then Hmm. she returned back to education, formal education. For them at that time, the focus was not a fear of, you know, CRT and what kind of uh, whitewashed history that we like needed to learn instead, although that was mm, a piece of it. But they were mainly concerned about desecularizing us, like a lot of evangelicals, kind of apocalyptic evangelicals in the 90s. They really mm. thought the world was going to hell in a handbasket and we're going to do everything in their power to give us a quality Christian education. And they also couldn't afford to send us to private school at that time, like a Christian private school. Yeah, we heard that a lot from people that it's a lot about the identity that's important to them, like preserving that. So I think for the more evangelical population, which is a huge percentage of homeschoolers in the U.S., that's a lot about like the curriculum and what they learn and what they might be exposed to in the public school environment or not even exposed to in like a negative way, but just that that their family priorities are not prioritized in the broader educational yeah. landscape. And so their parents feel really protective that, you know, this is what we need. This is what we need to give our kids right now. And, you know, we, we did speak to a lot of people where maybe homeschooling was doesn't look as traditional as you would imagine, like your parents at the dinner table teaching you like that there are these co-ops and collectives and these kind of, you know, we open and the piece with this basically school, <laughs> it's like yeah. a school for homeschoolers. There's a lot of evolution of what homeschool looks like these days. And I think that's also made it easier for people to do it because you don't necessarily have to be a stay-at-home parent anymore. You don't have to make a ton of money like to support taking care of your kids and teaching them full-time. Like you can do these kind of other approaches. You can teach them at home a little bit. You can put them in some courses. You can work while they do Zoom homeschool classes. Like there's a lot of flexibility now, which has diversified the pool of homeschoolers, but also strengthened how easy it is to do. So it's increased the numbers. Um, But yeah, the common denominator is everyone feels like I want to make sure I'm controlling the input of what my kid is taking in and, and told is important. And so wherever people fall on the spectrum, it's, it's largely about wanting to like preserve those values, you know, that are important to you at home, whatever they may be. It's interesting you said your mom was a teacher who came from public school and then went back to public school because we we met other homeschooling parents who were teach public school teachers and then decided to homeschool. And it's an interesting and like complicated dynamic or relationship there. But that probably took away the issue for you and these other families of you know, any type of quality control, which is not something we got into in the piece. But as, again, your Canadian caller mentioned, a lot of states have no regulations at all around the curriculum. What what is an education? What does the state approve as an education? The HSLDA has fought really hard to get rid of any standards. And so in our piece, at one point, we show a couple maps that that show where they've been particularly successful in knocking down any minimum requirements. I know New York is one of the states that the HSLDA points to and says it's really hard to homeschool there. And that's because there are a few different 
uh, curriculum and testing requirements around homeschooling. So they want to get rid of any of those in all states. They really do want a vision of education where in this country where education is whatever their parents decide it is. And it just, again, calls into question, I mean, the just basic unifying principles um, of this country if, if we don't agree on what, an, you know, what a basic components of an education should be. It tests the limit of like individuality to like how much really should you be responsible for individually? And is there a role for experts? You know, because I think we've seen that a lot in the public conversation. You should be the expert on your own health. You should be the expert on your own kids' education. You know, it's kind of a gateway conversation, the education thing, because parents do feel like maybe I do know the best thing for my kid. You know, I know better than these teachers about what my kid should be learning. So it's kind of like an interesting world in which. There are a lot of educators who have opted out themselves, you know, and said, mm. I'm just going to do this on my own for my kids. But it's a, it's a weird thing because it inherently means that you're valuing your own kind of opinion over like a trained professional. Do you have any sense of what the future of all of this might look like? Do you think that the increased numbers will hold? I think there will be a normalization in terms of the numbers because I think homeschooling is really hard. It's really hard to take care of and educate your own children. Homeschooling means a very different thing now in 2023 than it did even like five, 10 years ago. So I think the numbers will stay higher than they were before the pandemic. They will probably not stay at that crazy high level as things sort of start to normalize. But I do think more people will be doing it in the future than were before. Cause it's kind of like remote work. It's realizing, oh, there's flexibility here. Like maybe I can take advantage of that in a way that I didn't think was accessible to me. So I have seen parents discover that. And as far as the kind of bigger connection to the political movement, I think we're seeing that play out. It'll probably be a huge theme in this election cycle, mm. parental choice and how involved parents should be and what happens at school. That's a huge theme that is not done playing out, I think. Homeschool parents are deeply embedded in that parents' rights conversation. When you see those words, they very much include homeschool parents. Definitely this idea that parents should have absolute power is a thing that has just only continued to gain momentum in the last year or two. So I think we're going to keep seeing that. It's going to keep playing out in these more and more politicized conversations because as I said, I think it's a really easy way to mobilize people. It's a really easy way to get people on your team. If you make them feel like their kids are at risk or being threatened in some way. And that's kind of like the biggest theme of homeschooling is it's like the ultimate way to protect your child. And ladies, before we wrap up, one of the hardest questions to answer in the whole homeschooling conversation is, well, what are the outcomes? How do homeschool kids fare? And let me refer you to a presentation from Harvard's 2021 Post-Pandemic Future of Homeschooling Conference, which put it this way, it is not answerable with currently available empirical data. There's not a ton of rigorous research. Study populations are too small to extrapolate. And part of the reason why there's not a ton of good data is because groups like the homeschool lobby have fought tooth and nail to get the state out of education full stop. That parents don't have to report anything. They do not want to follow any standardized testing, standardized curriculum, the measures of what is or is not a good education is highly subjective in the world of homeschooling. And the quality is highly individualized depending on 
how how healthy of a learning environment a family is able to establish at home, what kind of teaching instruction someone is able to provide. And also, it's going to depend on the child. There is no blanket answer. And the open-endedness of it all is part of the point. So, unladies, now I would love to hear from any fellow homeschoolers, any unladies who are interested in homeschooling or maybe currently homeschooling their kids. Like, one thing I really appreciate about Mina and Julia's reporting and approach is their emphasis on the fact that homeschoolers are not a monolith. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send me your emails or voice memos. I would love to hear your voice. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. Huge thanks to Mina Hart Dewerson and Julie Lindau. You can follow them on Twitter. I don't know if they're on threads yet, y'all. I'm not on threads yet at least as of this recording, uh, but you can follow them on Twitter at Minasaurus and at Julia Lindau. And of course, you can watch The Secret Power of Homeschoolers on YouTube. And huge thank you to our Canadian school teacher, unlady and patron, Christina, who suggested this episode. If you'd like to hear more about my own personal journey with homeschooling and what it was like for me, you can listen to a surprisingly emotional bonus episode over in the Patreon Unladies Room. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia is where you can go subscribe and find that episode. You can also follow Unladylike on TikTok and Twitter for now at unladylikemedia. And if you want to directly support the show, the best way to do that is by coming on over to the Unladies Room. Get those bonus episodes. Get those uncut interviews with some of our featured guests. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. It just costs $5 a month or more to join. You can also support the show directly by going to unladylike.co slash shop. And getting yourself some brand new gorgeous Unladylike merch. How about that? Unladylike is an Unladylike media production, executive produced, hosted, written, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. Anytime I would meet new kids my age, of course, one of the first get-to-know-you questions is, where do you go to school? I would then say, I'm homeschooled. And then they would say, do you get to do school in your pajamas? And, you know, I would say, uh, nah, well, I mean, I could. I, I generally prefer to get dressed before going to school. And then I would generally try to change the subject. I wanted to blend right into the crowd and... And not give away too many clues that I was a homeschool kid. Because, of course, the stereotype of homeschool kids is that we're freaks.